Jason Scorse, and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is hanging in there and at least getting some good summer fun in whatever ways you can that is safe and uh, happy. So today's episode is entitled, What Does Effective Advocacy and Social Change Look Like? I have been teaching public policy for going on 20 years here and been pretty active in a number of political campaigns and issue campaigns. And, uh, you know, that being said, I realize I'm learning a lot as we go on, that there's never uh, too much to learn on these fronts, that these are such complicated dynamics to actually change society that you can never really have it all figured out. Obviously, in this moment, when people are protesting across the country in pretty unprecedented numbers for systemic change and policing and and just kind of the whole militarized police state and the prison system, uh, it's a good time to talk about what does actually effective advocacy and social change look like in practice. You know, how do we know if what we're doing is actually having a positive impact in the ways that, you know, we envision? What would success look like? Uh, So that's kind of what I'm going to, you know, um, discuss today and pontificate on a little and hope you enjoy it. So I want to start with a quote um, from Ibram Kendi. Um, And he's, you know, one of the big authors on anti-racism and kind of race relations. He's a professor. And his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is now, you know, selling out and back-ordered in this moment, which is great. Um, I just finished How to Be an Anti-Racist. I think his writing is actually pretty poor, the actual quality of the writing. But the ideas in there are pretty deep and really worth... Uh, you know, analyzing and digesting. Just even the term anti-racist, I think, is brilliant. And so, again, not a great writer, but a great thinker and definitely worth paying attention to. And there's a there was a paragraph in the book that really spoke to me. And uh, let me just read it verbatim. It says, The original problem of racism has not been solved by suasion. Knowledge is only power if knowledge is put to the struggle for power. Changing minds is not a movement. Critiquing racism is not activism. An activist produces power and policy change, not mental change. If a person has no record of policy or of power or policy change, then that person is not an activist. So that's pretty heavy stuff, right? Because I think a lot of us who participate in social movements, think of ourselves as activists if we're protesting, if we're signing petitions, if we're posting on social media, all of which are valid pursuits. But, you know, according to this definition, which I do think is valid and I think really is is worth meditating on, 
if you don't actually change systems, if you don't change power dynamics, if you don't change outcomes, if you don't deal with the structural systemic issues and the issues you care about, you're not really being effective. You're making a lot of noise, not necessarily negative noise, but just a lot of noise, a lot of, you know, a lot of heat, but not necessarily that much light that's laser focused on actually getting the things done that you want. And so I guess the, the key kind of dynamic to take out of that is that changing minds is not enough, right? And let's let's unpack this a little because, you know, so much of, of the discourse in today's society is focused on persuading people, you know, one-upping people on social media and Twitter and trying to change people's minds and debate. And look, I am guilty of a lot of that. I, I certainly spend a significant amount of time on that. But if we take a look here, the reality is most people are creatures of habit and are not leaders, right? Let's be honest about that, right? As much as people can contribute and vote and all kinds of things, the people are actually really changing the fundamental structures of society and helping set the agenda and point us in different directions are few and far between. Most people follow cues, they follow charismatic individuals, they follow cultural norms that they've been brought up with, whether they're religious or otherwise. Technology changes people, right? Like, I didn't decide that I wanted, you know, an iPhone and, you know, Netflix, but when it came around, like everybody, I got it. And now those technologies shape me and my behavior, you know, not the other way around. Also, of course, people uh, respond to policy incentives, right? So I teach economics, and I, like, I always joke in my economics class, while most religious people don't think of their religions as material, right? They think it's a deeper spiritual thing. They go to church less when gas prices go up, right? So even something that is a non-material pursuit is affected by material conditions, right? I think something even more fundamental, and Ibram Kendi gets at this in his book, and I think it's really worth emphasizing, is that many people have the direction of causation for social change and activism wrong, right? They think we, if we change people's minds, we'll get a critical mass, and then the changing minds will change policy. And actually, it's oftentimes the other way around that we change policy and that changes people's minds. So let's take two examples of this in, in recent history. The first being obviously gay marriage, right? Gay marriage was decided at the Supreme Court. It was not done through democracy. In fact, not a single Democratic legislature in the United States had passed gay marriage through a majority vote. Not even in California, liberal California. In fact, Proposition 8 banning gay marriage um, had passed in California. So the court comes in, they legalize it automatically, it's legal in all 50 states, and then what happens? In the last few years, the acceptance of gay marriage has grown in a huge way to where now large majorities favor it, and in fact, even many conservatives do. And so something that they fought for vociferously, think about this, I mean, if you, if you remember, you know, George Bush and Karl Rove used um, ballot initiatives against gay marriage in 2004 in key swing states to help win that election. Uh, you know, the conservatives were saying the sky was going to fall, right? I mean, it's going to be the end of civilization, you know, Western civilization, if gays could marry. It was the one step towards bestiality and all kinds of craziness, right? So here we are. 
a few years after gay marriage is, is basically imposed through a policy change by the Supreme Court. And then all of a sudden people are like, oh, wow, sky's not falling. Doesn't really affect me that much. I know gay people. It's cool. They want to get married. Fine. And so that's a perfect example of, you know, a, a, a decision, a policy change, changing the culture, not the other way around. I think another one is, you know, uh, Obamacare. Right. Obamacare was, you know, really unpopular while Obama was president. It was a little unfairly polled because a lot of people who didn't like it wanted it to actually be more towards Medicare for all, more left. So it wasn't that they hated Obamacare. They just didn't think it went far enough. But putting that aside, you know, they, we passed it. It was, you know, really unpopular. In fact, bare majorities really liked it. And now here we are, you know, 10 years later, and it has the highest approval ratings uh, that it's ever enjoyed, and the people who are trying to take away health care are having a really hard time because people have gotten used to it and they really like it, right? So I think this is really instructive, which is the left has the right ideas, right? Universal health care, good education, women's rights, gay rights, universal daycare, uh, paid sick leave, higher minimum wage, more immigration, all the things, you know, go down the list, climate change policy, clean energy, you know, basic minimum income. And even if some of these are not super popular at the moment or large segments, you know, of people don't know a lot about them, if we were to just pass them, they would become popular because they're good, sound ideas, right, that will make society better and the opposition to them will fade. So I think the left really needs to start thinking about this, that, you know, we need to really push the envelope here and uh, and try to pass more really strong changes that are good for society. And then the, 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 the popular you know opinion will catch up. I think one of the reasons that the right has been more effective in a lot of ways at kind of building the institutions um, and the structures for power is that the left, we've won the culture and own most of it. Right. So, you know, the, the right focuses on the, these core institutions of power. They're, of course, resentful that they don't control the culture. They they wish they did. And then they use their power to harm their opponents instead of actually helping all Americans. But they're really focused on the levers of power while we're really focused on the cultural norms. And we've kind of won that space and we're not going backwards. You know, Republicans aren't going to bring back the 1950s nuclear family you know, into mainstream culture. That's not happening. We're not going to put the genie back in the bottle for gay and trans rights, etc. So what we need to start focusing on is really the levers of power, the institutions of power, and become a lot more bold in the policy change with the confidence that the public will catch up with us. And now, obviously, we have to do this through democratic means, um, but there's a lot of levers that I'll talk about later. You know, the last point I want to make on this is that you know, there was the Occupy Wall Street movement in the, you know, in the in the around the time of the financial crisis, you know, 2008, 2009. And, you know, that was an incredibly powerful movement. And a lot of the great ideas came out of that against kind of the billionaire class and the finance class. And a lot of that, I think, has impacted the left's view of policy. But the Occupy movement was really apolitical. And they really said they don't want to get involved in politics. And I think that was a huge mistake because it wasn't didn't allow them to translate the good ideas into actual power. And again, coming back to the definition we started with, if you don't change policy and power dynamics, 
you're not really doing much. You're just speaking a lot and making a lot of good arguments, but it doesn't really matter because power doesn't change by argumentation. It change, you know, it changes when it's forced to change through hard work and victory. Now, I think the Black Lives Matter movement has not really been falling into the trap that the Occupy Wall Street movement fell into. They're very focused on policy, and I think they're going to be big advocates of the Democratic Party in the upcoming elections. And then they're going to use that leverage and say, hey, we helped bring you into office. We helped bring, you know, other you know, socially active Democrats into the party. And now you owe us something, right? There's a transactional nature here. You help a party win, and then they owe you some cred and some policy, part of the policy platform. And so I think they're doing quite a lot uh, that's, that's right and effective for social change and movement building. So after the break, I'm going to talk about two kind of modern examples where I think we can, we can elaborate a little bit more on these key points. Caught a glimpse how the others must see the faker. I'm much too fast to take that test. Okay, so I'd like to elaborate a little on this kind of the effectiveness of social change and advocacy and bring it down to an experience I've had over the last few decades with veganism and plant-based diets. You know, I've talked about this on the podcast a number of times. It's really probably, in my view, the most important kind of lifestyle, lifestyle transformation we need to make. It's gotten even more important now that we see that Animals are the source of these vectors of pandemics, and uh, whether it's you know avian flu or swine flu or obviously COVID, and that the you know as long as we have this concentrated factory farming system, we're really going to be in horrible shape for pandemics, and that's on top of the the just the brutal torture and maltreatment of animals, the humans in the system, the incredible toxic chemicals greenhouse gas emissions, water, land use, you name it. It's really, if I, could, if I could wave a magic wand and do one policy change, you know, it would turn the world vegan. And again, gourmet vegan, everyone eating amazing, delicious food, you know, but that would be my, uh, my, my big grand wish. So the key is, though, is, you know, we're never going to convince a majority of people of humanity to switch to a plant-based diet based on ethics and values. Like the number, the percentage of people who follow, you know, a vegetarian, vegan diet, begin they do it because of, you know, their ethics is, is in the single digits. Maybe in UK or parts of Europe, it's up to 10%, but it's a very small percentage. And this is after decades and decades of activism. So clearly that's not going to be sufficient for the large scale systemic change, right? So... The key is making it normal and acceptable to the masses, right? And in, in, in a lot of ways, Beyond Meat is kind of like, I think, the, the perfect example of a strategy to do this, right? So Ethan Brown, the CEO, he, he has a vision. He wants to end factory farming for, for ethical and environmental reasons. He said, what's the way to do this? 
I'm going to create a product that tastes as good, it's better for you, and eventually will be cheaper. And let's just think about it. If he actually achieves, I think he's achieved, tastes just about as good. Most people think so. It's certainly healthier than meat. It's not, you know, an absolute sense the healthiest food, but it's definitely healthier than, than meat. And it's getting cheaper. He's going to be working on the nutrition element and the price. And so there will be come a point where Beyond Meat will be so perfected that it'll be much more nutritious than meat. It will taste almost identical and be cheaper. And at that point, why would anyone eat meat, right? You're going to see wholesale transformation. And if they can do the same thing for chicken or pork or dairy or fish, it's all of it's going to go in that way. So that's, that's a really great example of using innovation and business to just change a whole system from the ground up and again veganism wins when we make big large-scale changes like that and changes in institutional structures changes in the norms changes in the habits with high quality products that people just you know obviously uh, you know after some trial and error just realizes is is a you know a superior way to go Key thing here is it's really not an intellectual argument, right? This big transition we're seeing to plant-based diets and veganism is not being won through intellectual argument and debate. It's the same thing with animal rights more generally, right? People are sympathetic to the issue of animal rights, you know, especially people who have dogs and cats and they kind of realize, wow, you know, pigs and cows are kind of like as smart or almost as smart and if someone mistreated my dog or cat like that we do a pig like I would you know I, those people go to jail I would I would be up in arms so people are sympathetic but the sympathy isn't the advocacy right advocacy is actually changing laws and perhaps even going as far as giving rights to non-human animals to these other sentient beings that are enforceable so that we can change the structures of society now once you change that baseline People are going to adapt to it, right? So this comes back to that point earlier, which is, you know, even if, you know, people are generally sympathetic to issues of animal rights, most aren't, aren't going to go the, you know, do a lot to change their habits, make sacrifices, do experimentation, do the work to change the structures. But once those structures fundamentally change, they'll probably go along with it, right? And they're not going to be that upset about it. Maybe there'll be a little you know, in the, in the beginning. Um, but you know, within a, you know, like, you know, months, years, people will, will get on with it. Now, the, the key point I want to emphasize here is that, that the, the taking things away from people is hard, right? And Republicans know this, which is why they block everything. Cause they know once people get used to a new baseline, then it's really hard to take things away from them. Right. So our jobs as advocates is to change that baseline so people get used to a new norm and accustomed to the better way, which is then very hard to dislodge. I want to end this segment with an example from my own work. Right. So I work at a at a graduate professional school has about, you know, 450 people in the policy school, a couple other hundred people in the language school. And we have a, a big graduation reception every spring that's about 1,600 people. It's all the students, friends, family. And over the years, we've been bringing more plant-based options into the, the reception. 
And before we did this, it was exactly what you'd think. It was roast beef sandwiches and, you know, like, you know, sushi with fish and cheese and crackers and desserts, ice cream and cake with eggs and milk. So really a, a vegan's nightmare. And to be honest, the food was pretty disgusting overall. It was pretty gross. So we then decided, why don't we go, you know, we've been, we were doing it incrementally. And we said, why don't we go for 100% plant-based graduation? Since my school is international, we'll, we'll highlight food from all over the world. We'll make it really fun and exciting. And this will just be a great way. We'll put a little information in the program talking about we're doing this for sustainability and we hope everyone enjoys it. And we'll get some sponsors. It's going to be great. So we introduced this and the student council flipped out. I had never seen anything like it. They literally, and, they, and also keep in mind, they had never had input into the choice of food ever before in the you know 70 year history of the institution. But then all of a sudden we want to go plant-based and they're flipping out that you're taking away my choice when they never had any choice before and the food was horrible uniformly. But they flipped out, I, I, I tried to reason with them I even brought them a bunch of vegan desserts that were amazing to just say, hey, this stuff could taste great. Anyway, the, the president at that point shot it down and said, we're, we're just going to we're going to try again next year. We'll do it in a better way so people feel have more time to kind of put input. And, um, you know, but we're going to not do it this year. There's too much pushback. And it was probably the lowest point of my academic career right and I and I told these students that I said is your is your last act as a graduate school of public policy to block an innovative new you know change at the school level and and to have fun with you know a plant-based graduation that you you're demanding meat at your graduation that's going to be your last act as a graduate student but uh, unfortunately a lot of them you know wanted that to be and they had their way but I give the, the, the administration credit. The next year we came back, they announced it way in advance. There was then some pushback. People did an online petition against it. There was all the people from the year before who were saying, we gotta help block it again. And you know, we we just we defeated this last year. And but the 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 president stood firm and we went ahead with it. We got uh, sponsors from all of these uh, great vegan companies. And to my knowledge, this was the first all plant-based vegan graduation in U.S. college history. So we made some history. And it was a huge success. We had incredible food. Uh, you know, we had everything from Middle Eastern food to veggie sushi to chocolate brownies um, to, you know, to we had Miyoko's vegan cheese and crackers. It was just incredible. It was definitely the best food ever at a, at a graduation ceremony. Everyone complimented it. No one complained. And it was a huge hit. It was such a huge hit that the president said, we're just going to go vegan graduation from here on out. This is it. You know, we're, we're, this, is, this, this trial was so successful. Miyoko, uh, Miyoko's Kitchen and Miyoko decided to be a, a permanent sponsor of our graduation. And they send us now, um, we've done two of them. And obviously COVID uh, uh, blocked the last one. But uh they said they're going to send us, you know, a thousand dollars worth of free product every graduation. They're like their official sponsor. So the point being here is, is that it uh, once we did it, people came along, right? They had all this resistance and all these, you know, um, impressions that were negative that weren't borne out by the facts. And now the new baseline is, wow, that vegan food's amazing. I want more. And in fact, I'll give credit. 
the guy who started the online position against it actually came came you know through to us and said I was wrong this vegan food's amazing you know and actually was trying to tell people that you know to reverse their position because he had made a mistake so it was a great learning uh, example and I think a good personal example of that sometimes you got to just push forward with the right thing if, if you're doing it with a good intention good outcome a good, you know, you're, you're thinking it through, you're really trying to make it as beneficial to as many people as possible, people will come around, but you have to push through that initial wave of resistance and have some courage, uh, which is what we were able to muster to make that change. So after the break, I'll come back and talk about what I think effective ad- advocacy in a future Biden administration might actually look like. And begin eating it in your body Its structure becomes your structure All the fear and stress of another Any drug is addicted by any name Even drugs in meat, they are the same The FDA has America strung out On drugs and beef, no doubt So if you think that what I say is a bunch of crap Tell yourself you're gonna try and stop Eating meat and you'll see you can't compete It's the number one drug on the street, not crack Cause that was made for just black foot ground beef For all American teeth, life brings life, death brings death. Keep on eating the dead and what's left, absolute disease and negative. Okay, so let's think about what effective advocacy in a future Biden administration would look like. Now, I want to start by saying, of course, there are dozens of important issues that need incredible attention, right? We got climate change, we got health care, we got immigration, we got police reform, we got voting rights. You know, and this is going to be plus the, you know, we're going to be probably in an economic depression. We're going to still be in the COVID pandemic. And there's all the destruction that Trump has wrought. I mean, this is what Republicans do, right? They just destroy and destroy. And then Democrats have to come in and clean up the mess, right? So the question is, we have to really think priorities here. And we have to think structural here to really set in place, set in motion things that will undo the damage that Republicans have wrought in a permanent way. Maybe not 100% permanent, but in a more structural, long-term way. What that points to is that the absolute first step the Democrats should take under a Biden administration is to really go all out on expanding voting rights and democracy. The reason I say this is because without that, every victory will be small, and or temporary and blocked, right? So let's let's talk about how this agenda might be, this pro-democracy, pro-voting rights agenda might play out. The first thing is, obviously, Biden has to win and get the Senate. Then we have to get rid of the Senate filibuster, right? Because there's no way Mitch McConnell is going to ever let Republicans vote for anything that expands democracy, right? The Republicans only win by minority rule, by rigging the system, suppressing votes, and lying and cheating. So you get rid of the filibuster, and now you only need a a majority. And then you go back and you pass H.R. 1 that Nancy Pelosi passed in the House of Representatives in 2018. You basically take that exact same bill, maybe even improve it, pass it in the House, and then make a Senate version and pass that. What does that do? that massively expands the voting pool in the United States, right? It has things like automatic voter registration for people who turn 18, automatic vote by mail for anyone who wants it, 
make voting a national holiday so people aren't waiting in you know five hour lines right uh, and, and missing work so this would structurally tilt the playing field towards increasing the electorate and we know when more people vote democrats win right the the, the republicans only win through suppressing the vote so that structural change plus gives statehood to dc and puerto rico so that means four more senators, most likely Democratic, and two more uh, representatives, most likely Democratic. So then you've tilted the, the Senate, which is already tilted way, way towards the small rural white states. So it gives them a huge amount of power compared to the metropolitan areas of, that are diverse and that are the key of the Democratic base. So you have expanded voting rights, an expanded voting pool, and higher voter turnout and then more Democratic votes in the Senate, right? Once you've done that, you've tilted the playing field back towards true democracy, right? We're not going to have true democracy in this country for a long time, if ever. The Electoral College is not Democratic. The Senate, as I said, is incredibly undemocratic, but it points us more Democratic by getting, you know, representation for Puerto Ricans and uh, District of Columbia, and also making sure all Americans have the right to vote that's easy. That will create a structural change that will be greatly in favor of the Democrats. And that will make passing everything from here on out easier. It will make it easier to win elections in the midterms. It will be easier to win presidential elections, right? Now, these are the two game changers in my view. Again, extra votes in the Senate and House and more voting rights. This is the priority, absolutely, that I think the Biden administration will be judged on. Did they increase democracy, not just go for quick hits when they have you know, an extra vote or two, and then let the system revert back to the, the Mitch McConnell obstructionism? As a way of kind of going back here in time a little, Mayor Pete, really one of the reasons I really loved his candidacy was he said this all the time. He said, the first thing we need to do is fix democracy so that we can you know, govern with a liberal agenda without having everything obstructed. Ezra Klein, whose show I like, whose podcast I recommend, he was asked, what would you be your priority for a Biden administration? He says the same thing. So again, I think the key point here is, is that without real democracy, the liberal agenda will never be realized. And, the, and America is so far from true democracy that we have to fight our way in that direction. Right. We may get some victories on some issues. And look, don't get me wrong. They're significant. Obamacare was significant. But let's look at Obama more broadly. You know, he's a good example of what happens when you don't change the fundamentally undemocratic element of the system. He gets, you know, Obamacare without any Republican help. And then he just gets obstructed for the next six years. And his whole agenda is thwarted. It's thwarted so much that they even steal his Supreme Court pick at the end of his administration that could have profoundly changed the country in a good way. So, you know, if Obama, when he had that 60-vote uh, majority in the Senate, imagine if they had passed the voting rights stuff. Imagine if they had given statehood to D.C. and Puerto Rico back in 2009. He could have changed the entire structure and made it much easier for him to govern. We might then not have lost the Senate to Mitch McConnell if we had expanded voting rights. And then if Mitch McConnell hadn't been in 
um, the, the majority leader, when Scalia died, we would have automatically gotten that and we'd have a 5-4 liberal Supreme Court right now. So again, I think Obama's perfectly illustrative in that he did some good things with the power he had. You know, the Dodd-Frank bill, the uh, Obamacare, but he didn't change the fundamental nature of the system. And here we are now with Trump just, you know, taking a wrecking ball to, to the whole country. And I don't think we're in really great shape. I think he made a tactical mistake. The Democratic Party made a tactical mistake. And so the question is, if we're going to follow that same path or do something a lot more bold and ambitious to really change the structure of the system, which is really how I'm going to judge the success of a future Biden administration. Fingers crossed, crossed that that is coming in a few months. So after the break, I'll come back with the antidote. Now stop and turn around and look At the stand of darkness your knowledge took So keep staring soon You suddenly see a star You better follow and consist of all This is a lesson if you're guessing If you're following Hurry, hurry, step right up And keep following the leader Follow the leader I can Okay, so for the antidote today here, I just want to say, you know, if you want to be a leader and you want to change society, you have to focus on power and power structures. Power never gives up voluntarily, right? Again, posting on social media is fine. I do it both as a cathartic exercise and also to spread good information, but it's not advocacy. We also have to think long term. Right. What is the society we want to see in 20, 30, 50 years? Not just what's the victory we want tomorrow, the first thing on the list. This re requires a degree of commitment and dedication that is often lacking on the left. The long-term patient game, working on the structures that will make a liberal agenda much more possible, not just one-off victories. So for those of us who want to build this new future, we need to develop this discipline and vision in ourselves and model it for others in the movement. And, uh, and then I think we can do really big things and the sky's the limit. So with that, everybody, uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, please uh, subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Uh, please rate it. Please share it with your family, friends, and colleagues. And with that, everybody, I hope you have a great rest of the week. Take care.